not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Why do we walk on this straight way? Why do we live the lives we live in the light of our heavenly glory, our hope that we're headed to a land where righteousness dwells, kind of implies that righteousness doesn't always dwell here. (laughs) and something to look forward to and hope in. Um, Well, as Chuck said, I'm grateful to be here. I've had many friends in this congregation, including Pastor, uh, your former pastor, Mike Brown, and William, and Chuck are some of my best friends in ministry. Um, The Horton family, Mike Horton has long been a mentor of mine in the Reformed faith, one of my first mentors. I met him um, almost 30 years ago. It's kind of scary to count that high. Um, and I know that this is a church that loves mission. It's a fellow church plant in the URC, so we have had a lot of common experiences. And it's a joy for me to be here and share um, some of those experiences with you. I, I want to, hopefully, if I do this well, kind of run through some lessons learned and leave time at the end for you to ask questions to sort of kind of generate a list of topics and whatever you might want to talk about. So um, if you have a question, please... Um, Please interrupt me. Um, Travel isn't what it used to be. So I flew in last night, you know, the old joke, my arms are tired. Um, But it it didn't go entirely smoothly. I checked in a little bit late and I got the warning sign that my bag couldn't get on the plane because it wasn't checked. I thought, well, I'll be doing this in sweats, you know. Um, But that worked out all right. And then we were delayed and then this and then that. And I forgot to rent a car. I had rented a car. I'd canceled that, changed my days, didn't make a new reservation. So I make the reservation. Um, but it's, it's like after we've landed, I'm on costcotravel.com, and I get to the Alamo desk, and um, first big question I have is, you know, well, this is a brand new reservation, sir. We don't have, we don't have a standard car for you. I'm like, oh, great. And they're like, well, we can put you in a Cadillac. I'm like, well, I'll take the Cadillac. You know, that sounds great. But that'll be an extra hundred bucks. And it's not entirely my money. I'm on a budget. I'm here for some meetings next week. And I think... Uh, I don't want to spend $100 of someone else's money, you know. So, uh, well, what, will you honor my price? Yeah, we'll honor your price. We'll get a car for you. So, you know, here, go out to pick your car. So I have, you know, two, the first decision is take the Cadillac for 100 extra bucks of someone else's money or, you know, get the cheaper car. So I choose the cheaper car. So by way of introduction, I'm kind of a cheapskate. <laughs> and uh, I get out there and I have another choice. Three pickup trucks. Not all bad, not all bad. So just to take a little bit of a pull here, have a, a full-size Dodge, a full-size Ford, or like a mid-size Chevy. So, so who takes the Dodge? That's what I thought. <laughs> who takes the full-size Ford? Yeah, it's sort of Ford country, right? Who takes the mid-size Chevy? All right, all right. Well, I took the mid-size Chevy. And um, 
So I'm driving down here to church today. Actually, last night I'm driving to the hotel, and then I'm driving down here, and the car just smells funny. It's really dirty. It's kind of gross inside. And I had not, nothing against Chevys. I'd not been inside for five minutes. I thought, like, man, I chose the wrong car. Like, I should have taken the full-size truck, one of those two. And then this morning, I'm like, I should be driving the Cadillac. What am I thinking? Like, I could have just paid the extra hundred bucks out of my pocket. It would have been worth it. Um, I think that relates to the picture here um, about how we plant churches. Uh, do we plant Chevys or Dodges or Fords or Cadillacs? And um, how we make choices in life. So that's kind of what I want to tee up a little bit after 15 years of lessons learned. Um, a word about our current status in D.C. First of all, Chuck gave my background. I'm a little bit of an accidental church planter. I, I wanted to go into academics. I mean, I wanted. That was my plan, Lord willing. Went and got a Ph.D. I'm glad I did that. I love that work. Um, and then... Um, Academic job market was hard. I've done some teaching at Reformed Theological Seminary, a few different campuses, uh, but ended up uh, following sort of a second career path uh, as, a, as a dual sort of option of working in government. I worked at the Department of Justice. I worked at, on Capitol Hill as a communications director for a congressman. Um, I worked uh, at the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, uh, there's a, a joke that I didn't make up, but you know, there's, we have two national endowments. We have a national endowment for the arts and a national endowment for the, for the humanities. And um, uh, my friend and predecessor in my job said, you know, um, we, we fund great books and they fund dirty books, but that's, that's an old joke anyway. Um, and then I worked at the Department of Defense. I worked in the Missile Defense Agency. It's like, what on earth are you doing, man? Like, look at all these jobs, right? But in the course of all that, I uh, was living and working in Washington, D.C. and realizing that the church landscape was kind of grim. Not bad. There are a lot of faithful Presbyterian and Reformed churches, very far spread around the city, few and far between, as is often the case. Um, but there really was a desperate lack in a metropolitan area of five or six million people. There was not a confessionally Reformed church. Uh, and I mean something particular by that. Um, I think in the continental tradition, the URC, our confessions are dear to us. They're not just a, a record or a norm of what we believe that we uphold. But they're a part of our liturgy and our worship. Our church order calls on us to teach them. And because of that, the confessions have given strength to the Reformed tradition um, that we all benefit from and enjoy today. So there's not a single confessionally reformed church in this entire metropolitan area. And other distinctives, I think, flow from that, from our clear teaching of what the marks of the church are, word and sacrament and discipline, uh, the preaching of law and gospel and Christ every Sunday, as we heard this morning. And um, I was really just struggling, sitting in the pews, attending churches and being frustrated. And I found myself complaining on my way out of church most Sundays. And then I the Lord kind of convicted me. I have eight years of graduate theological education. I'm licensed in the URC. I've done a lot of preaching. What am I complaining for if I'm not going to do anything about it? And so it wasn't just a, a one-man show. We had other friends that were in a similar place. And so that's sort of the origin story of our church. And I want to get that out of the way. But um, let me turn now just to a few lessons learned. And if you want to take notes or just mental notes, you can ask some questions. But I, I sort of jokingly... Uh, William's father used to often talk about the fact that he's written a lot more book titles than books. I don't know, you've probably heard that joke, right? So I have this idea of how not to plant a Reformed church. And uh, I don't mean to be too realistic or, or too grim, but church planting is hard. And we've had a difficult go of it in D.C. Um, in 2019, we considered closing our church down. 
took it to a congregational vote. We decided not to do that. The Lord has blessed us and preserved us through two difficult years, 2020 and 2021. And um, I'm guardedly optimistic for the future, but I feel like I've done everything wrong at least once. And so I want to share those lessons, and I think it's a great way to learn and grow in how uh, we plant churches. So I'm going to run through these pretty quickly, and everyone's a chapter in the book, so I could come back and say more, and I'll leave it up to what you want to hear more about. So the first one is uh, resources. Um, I think we go with the cheapest car on the rental lot more often than we should. And what do I mean by resources? In general, I think we vastly under-resource our church plants. Um, and, and there's two headings here. There's manpower, and there's uh, financial resources, and then maybe a subheading under property resources. So manpower, I'm a big believer in a two-man model. It's kind of biblical. I think you could just end the argument right there. Let's send two people out, right? Church planting is really hard. A lot of people have a bias that, well, if you're only pastoring like five people in a core group or 10 people or 20 people, that's easy. It gets hard when you have 50 or 100 or 200 people, right? You hire more staff as you grow bigger. That's diametrically backwards. It's harder when you're smaller because <laughs> you have to do everything yourself. You have to pick up the bulletins. You have to do this. You have to do this. You don't have any administrative support. You have to be a jack of all trades. And that's really not what we are trained to do at Westminster Theological Seminary in California. Uh, a lot of us learn to do that the hard way, but it's incredibly difficult work. And I think if you look back at where we've come from, a lot of our church planters burn out. Uh, we have a wonderful blessing, uh, Kyle Lee is ordained a deacon, former member of this church. We love when we get uh, transplants from sister churches. And uh, Kyle's, you know, um, breathing some new life, and especially our communications, our, our strategy on social media and our website. Go visit our website, you know, sign up for our updates. Kyle's all into that stuff. We'd, we appreciate your support, those of you who do that already. Um, but he's like, we have this MailChimp account. You know, MailChimp does these automatic emails. And he's like, what's going on with this thing? I haven't used this in five years. And I'm like, yeah, I used to do that every week. You know, and then I just got tired. And so there's a thing where you think in terms of human resources, like, and church planners, by definition, if you're going to go out and plant a church, you're, you're pretty full of yourself is too strong. You think you can do everything. You have to be entrepreneurial. You have to be optimistic. But we, we go out there and we sprint. But it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And um, I can look back over 15 years now and see so many things that I did for a while. And they made sense and they were good and useful. But then we stopped doing them. And I'm like, why did I stop doing that? I just got tired. And so human resources, a graduate of Westminster Seminary in California, a graduate of a faithful seminary, is a precious resource. And so I believe strongly that we should send two men. Maybe this could be two ministers. Maybe it could be a more senior man and a junior guy he's mentoring. Maybe it could be a matter of sending a man on the mission field and then supplying him regularly with interns. And there's a lot of benefits. It's, it's a whole chapter in the book. I could go on and on. Um, I think two-man ministry, and I'm, I'm delighted to see four ministers in your uh, bulletin here. I think that's so wise to have a plurality of ministers in a church. One of those guys could always be doing the work of outreach or evangelism or even church planting. It's so hard for one person to continually keep a church thinking outside the box. Where can we grow? How can we plant? How can we reach uh, new people? So I could go on and on about that. Another thing about two-man ministry is that it creates a demand for ministers. And people often say, like, well, we can't afford that. It's expensive, right? 
We can't afford to have men come out of seminary and not have a place to go and to be trained and to be mentored and then to be sent out to maybe plant another church or occupy another pulpit. We need to create those on-ramps to ministry. And so that's why I I really am in the business of encouraging churches. And in Washington, D.C., we have um, an associate pastor over the last two years, and I wish I'd had it from day one. It makes all the difference in the world. I think we would get to the finish line of an established, self-sustaining church more rapidly if we more fully resourced our churches. Well, let me speak a little bit to property. It's a big part of our story in D.C. This is another resourcing issue. Uh, this is a beautiful church. Uh, it's, really, it's really wonderful to be here. Uh, a nice, comfortable building. Um, so we've worshipped in a lot of interesting places in Washington, D.C. for a number of years. We worshipped in a church where President Teddy Roosevelt was a member, and he laid the cornerstone. Um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is the guy who invented the term, uh, the bully pulpit. You know, speak softly and carry a big stick. So for about 10 years, I preached from the bully pulpit. It was pretty cool. Um, We worshiped in another historic church as well. And these two beautiful buildings, we've just moved to a third one last July. These three beautiful historic buildings, the first two, um, we got them very cheap. Again, there's the resourcing thing. We were paying like a thousand bucks a month, 1500 bucks a month. That's dirt cheap in Washington, D.C. And... um, But this was a mixed blessing. We were renting from other congregations that were dying, so we were sharing space with them. Uh, Those congregations never wanted us to be there long term. (laughs) We were always a stopgap, so we never knew where we would be six months from now. We were never anchored in a particular place, and that's a problem. Uh, These churches weren't maintained. Uh, I made a short list on the way over here. Of, of things that that means, you know, the HVA system uh, in DC, that's a big deal. Like it wasn't no air conditioning in the summer, no heat in the winter. Um, it was like the Chevrolet. Um, fungus, literally growing out of the walls like mushrooms. Uh, rodents, dead and alive. Dead pigeons in the attic. Uh, you know, no few bathrooms, bad lighting, cleaning, dust, dirt. Uh, <laughs> there's the day one of the moms in the church sees like a little toddler playing with this thing. It's like, yeah, that's a, that's a chunk of rat poison, you know. Um, so we paid a price for cheap rent. And I think the biggest price was predictability, long-term stability, where we committed to a particular place, and especially in an urban center, but anywhere, here right in California, right? Anywhere here, if you wanted to pick a zip code and say, we are going to be a church in this zip code, and we're going to find a property that we could be reasonably confident that we'll be there for five or ten years, that's very hard and very expensive, Well, I'm suggesting that just maybe, maybe, just maybe, that should be one of our top priorities and we should plan for it and budget for it. Um, Let me close this slight rant. I don't mean to rant. We are currently in a beautiful church. It's a Seventh-day Adventist church. That's like a church planter's dream, right? Um, They worship on Saturdays. It's free on Sundays. Um, There's only a handful of them in D.C. And the Lord, literally, we got canceled from our last lease a vis-a-vis cancel culture, and we had a month or two to find a place, and we were terrified, and we had a visitor who had only visited once or twice. The first Sunday I announced this prayer request, come up and say, talk to this church, because I used to worship in a church that rented that building, and they just bought a building, and so it's available. And in God's providence and blessing, he opened the door that we have this beautiful, well-maintained, historic church property less than a mile from the Capitol building on Capitol Hill. Really, really beautiful. And so I praise God for that blessing. Um, 
related to where to plant a church, um, how to choose that property, is where in a city, in the city or the suburbs. Um, I'm not one of these guys. I'm not cut from the same cloth necessarily as Tim Keller, wonderful guy, wonderful teacher of God's word. Uh, But New York City PCA church planter Tim Keller, you hear him speak and he sort of prioritizes the city, right? It's more holy, it's more sanctified, it's more valuable. Uh, You influence culture in the city, right? All those things have elements of truth to them. But um, I don't believe that. I think one of the issues with cities is there's just a lot of people there. And a lot of them aren't going to drive out of the cities to go somewhere else. People that live in Washington, D.C., you know, the District of Columbia is a diamond 10 miles on each side, and then Virginia got its part of the diamond back. So it's the Maryland, former Maryland part of a diamond. And people in D.C. won't leave the city. A lot of them don't have cars. Um, There's a river between Virginia, where I live, and our church in the city, people won't cross the river. It's like going out to the wilds, you know, even though in the metro area stretches for miles in other directions. Um, I often wonder, and I do think, that it might have been easier for us if we had planted our church in the suburbs instead of in the city. Um, We've gone back and forth on that, and I don't know the answer. Every church plant's different. Depends where your core group is. It depends where your pastor is. Depends where your heart is. I think the important thing is, and this is a lesson learned, pick one and commit to it. Build a strategy around it. Plan around it. Um, One other thing about property, and this might pertain to you. I had this conversation with a few people during the break. You know, I know and love, um, you know, Escondido URC, Oceanside URC, Santee URC. Um, when you think about where to plant a church, I think it's important that we don't just think, how far am I willing to drive on a Sunday morning? (laughs) A lot of times we have a core group and these people will like, they'll crawl over crushed glass to get to biblical preaching and uh, word and sacrament ministry. And we think, well, you know, well, we could be there and we can all drive there. That's a good central location. The important question is where and how far will the people drive who aren't yet a member of your church to come and worship with you? Your audience, if you think of choosing a property, it, it, it communicates something. It's a message, right? We are here. This is our place. These are our priorities. It's a message. And whenever you communicate, you want to think, who is my audience? Your audience is future members of your church. Now, not entirely. You're not slaves to future members, but let's listen to them. And so think about this, and this isn't original to me, but how, not how far can I drive to go to a church, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe, you know, I could do a show of hands, maybe an hour, people that drive here, right? But how far can you bring a neighbor to come with you and expect them to come back on their own every week if they have a good experience? Because your church is going to grow through word of mouth, through organic relationships you all have, through sharing information in the workplace, in your schools, in your communities. And that group of of being a church that is evangelistic and on a mission, pursuing the the Great Commission, your growth potential is really much smaller than that bubble. And we want to plant churches that grow. So let me, I have a bias. It's just my own bias. But I think we shouldn't, in the URC, say, three churches, San Diego County? We're doing pretty good. (laughs) You know, for me in Washington, D.C., it's three hours north to Pennsylvania for the nearest URC or five hours south to North Carolina. Do we have D.C. covered? No way. And I think the plan for San Diego County should be 10 or 15 churches. 
But pastor, we can't afford that. Pastor, we're too small. Well, I think we should pray for it. Build a strategy to attain it. And realize that this church might be serving Reformed Christians who live, say, downtown and drive up here. But it's not serving unbelievers down there. It's not an easy way for them to come and meet Jesus on a weekly basis. And um, that's a bigger strategic question. But I want to encourage you all to pray to that end. I I think we should think about densely covering lots of key places. Um, Let me say something really quickly about oversight. Because I just told a story to kick this off, the origin story of Washington, D.C., that was kind of church planter-centric. And I think that's overwhelmingly true in our church plants. You get a church planter who has a vision and they go out, uh, church supports them. But our ecclesiology, our model of of planting churches is is a church-centered model. And so church oversight is crucial to planting churches. That means that even if you have a passionate, zealous church planter, our model should be church-centered. Oversight matters. And so if he has a vision, he needs to share that vision with his elders and with his church And they need to buy into that vision. And the whole church needs to be on board with it. And all of that's to say, when I talk about like multiple churches in San Diego County, and believe me, I'm not sitting, I'm not Monday morning quarterback in here. I'm not telling you what to do. Every locality is different. I'm I'm using San Diego as an example, a, a hypothetical example. What I think is a healthy uh, model is that your church, uh, migrates to, embraces a vision of church planting. And because that oversight is so important, I far and away think the most successful church plants are going to be those that are basically daughter churches, which has a little bit of a bad reputation in our history, in our tradition, maybe among some people. What I mean by a daughter church is you have five families that are driving from one community, maybe an elder or deacon that lives out there, and they all live within a couple miles of each other. And I think if you have multiple ministers on staff in this multiple minister model, you send one to go nurture that group as a community. Maybe you do some weekly Bible studies there. Maybe you start praying that the Lord could open a group and you try to invite your friends and neighbors to a, a, a weekly catechism group or something in that area. And you daughter a church by sending five or 10 families and some officers. And then you have this close relationship with them as they grow and mature I think that's going to be vastly more successful. I could list a few of our unsuccessful church plants in the URC where we have a vision for these far-flung places. It's very, very difficult. And the Lord blessed us with a church plant really out of our church um, and our, our Pennsylvania church where uh, William's brother is now the pastor. We oversaw a work in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was a long way away. It was a flight or a day's drive. The difference there, we had an Ohioan, a Buckeye, committed to that city, to that place. But he spent over a year with our churches developing a plan that we embraced and we agreed to. And I traveled there and elders traveled there. We visited that place and we were committed to it. Um, but, so all different things can kind of work. But I, I think that's, that's really the best model, this daughtering model that really honors churchly oversight. We're far more shaped by our culture than we believe we are. And our culture is a celebrity-driven, pastor-driven culture. We should be elder and deacon and oversight-driven. I often tell people that I have learned more in the area of ecclesiology and healthy governance every single year of my 15 years as a pastor than any other area. 
how valuable and precious is our distinctive reformed understanding of, of church governance and oversight. It sounds weird. It doesn't really sound gospel driven, but it is. It really is because Christ rules his church, not people, not men. And Christ only rules and governs his church through his spirit when the church is properly structured to allow him to have rule and reign and dominion. Um, One lesson learned is about time. In my mind, I had this beautiful three, five-year plan when we'd be an established, uh, sustainable church. And we're 15 years in. Um, Could have taken a lot of different paths through that time. I don't know how we'll survive. Um, in, In God's providence, again, we have a, I was sharing during the break, we have a wonderful church council, including Kyle Lee, newly ordained as a deacon. Um, three wonderful deacons, an associate minister, two wonderful elders, a great foundation of leadership. The Lord has put us in a new property, in a wonderful place on Capitol Hill. Uh, we're getting more visitors. Uh, the last two years, really the last three years, our Sunday attendance has declined by 45%. Because D.C. is such a transitional place that we've always been a church where people move in and people move out. And it's sort of a constant balancing act. And even before COVID 2019, we had our property situation, again, property, took a turn for the worse. And... Um, that situation was not conducive to attracting new members. And then 2020, uh, you know, I'm driving into church and there's a big military vehicle blocking the road to the church. That wasn't conducive for new members and visitors. And I could uh, continue in 2021. We should be patient. The Lord is patient about his promises. And, uh, we need to think long and hard about when it might be wise to close a church plant. And sometimes that is the wise course. Sometimes it's wise to stick it out and to persevere. And uh, we don't make those decisions based on individuals. We make them based on deliberation because we have uh, stakeholders in whether or not a church exists in Washington, D.C. And those stakeholders include our elders and our deacons and our members and our classes and our synod, and all the churches that have prayed for us and supported us over the years, for which we're deeply, deeply grateful. I have 45 seconds, and then 15 minutes for questions. About 10 years ago, I created this list of the top 20 metropolitan areas in the United States. Um, New York, LA, Chicago, Washington, Baltimore, San Jose, San Francisco, Boston, Providence, Mass, Dallas, Philadelphia, Houston, Miami, Atlanta, Detroit, Seattle, Minneapolis, Cleveland, Denver, Orlando, Portland, St. Louis, Pittsburgh. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the 2020 list, the 2020 census. So out of those 20 metropolitan areas, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we have URC presence in about seven of them, by which I'd say like one church somewhere in a whole metropolitan area. Now, those 20 regions, areas, constitute almost half the United States population, 148 million people. And the, the 13 that we don't have a presence in, and by the way, you know, having one church in New York City is not much of a presence. Having one church in D.C., there's lots of room to grow there, right? But we have 13 metropolitan areas that are fully a half of the half, 75 million Americans. And if they go onto our website or they hear a great sermon or they're introduced to the teaching of Bob Godfrey at Ligonier or Mike Horton on the White Horse Inn and they want to go to a URC church, sorry, you're out of luck. Now we're in fellowship with uh, the OPC, 
the PCA, other wonderful, there are other churches out there. We're not the only game in town. That's not our vision of the church. But as I started out by saying, we have this unique confessional vision that is beautiful. It's matchless in its beauty. The Heidelberg Catechism. It's a wonderful thing. And we are, I fear, hiding this wonderful light under a bushel. And so I want to exhort you, brothers and sisters, as I pull up here now and open up for a little bit of uh, time of questions, happy to take a deeper dive or, or address any other, other things. Um, I exhort you uh, to pray to this end, to be a church that continues to be faithful to its missionary roots, right, as a church plant, to be a church planting church. We want to plant churches that plant churches. That's our vision in D.C., and it's been a struggle. We have been a part of a few other church plants. We haven't been able to do our own in the area, but we would love to have 10 or 15 churches in the D.C. Baltimore area. Um, so join us in praying for that, and join us in, in striving and struggling toward that end wherever the Lord may find us. Um, thank you very much. Any questions or comments if you want to? Yeah. Yeah, I will absolutely restate it for everyone. So the question, it's an observation. I think I'm hearing. Uh, Can you formulate a short question? It's a great point. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm in town partly to talk about that with some folks over the next week. Interesting question. So you could talk to me or Chuck about that. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a very important question. Westminster Seminary in California, I am an unapologetic hometown bigot. I root for the home team. There's nothing like it in terms of preparing ministers. But the opportunity costs and the financial costs are massive related to online subpar theological education that is churning out the vast majority of ministers now. So A, I'm glad that you didn't go the route of, well, should we lower our standards? Absolutely not. High bar for training the man for ministry. But if we're going to have that high bar for ministry, we better be ready to pay for it. And so while I didn't plan to work in government for all these years, for a couple of years, I, I ran the budget hearing for the National Endowment for the Humanities. So the Lord blessed me with experience in the real world and things like your, I, I think we should explore uh, debt forgiveness for people that enter the ministry and stay in the ministry. I think we should explore ways to keep them out of debt in the first place. I think it would be wonderful. And there's nothing stopping anyone, any church from um, any classes of churches, that's our regional body, right, from saying, we are going to fund aggressively and support our young men to go to seminary. We're going to pay not only for their tuition. I think in Classes East, we offer $5,000 a year. Well, that's wonderful. But why five? You know, why not more? Why not? And again, you know, there are a lot of, you know, the trade-offs, right? You don't want to give someone a free education, entirely free, because some people might treat it like it's priced. So you want there to be skin in the game. You want there to be an investment. There are a lot of different ways to accomplish that. So um, love to get your contact information. Uh, loan forgiveness is something I'm really interested in. Um, any other questions? Yes. Yes. Wonderful question about the different neighborhoods in DC and different socioeconomic sort of and, and who comes to our church. 
for 14 years of our existence, we were in northwest D.C., about a mile north of the White House. Uh, northwest is very high-end and Tony. That's where you get like Georgetown University. Um, Capitol Hill is its own bubble. It's gentrified rapidly. Capitol Hill used to be one of close to like the murder capitals of the nation in the 80s with, with the crack uh, drug epidemic. It's now gentrified and it's incredibly expensive. Uh, townhouse a few doors down from church went for like three and a half million dollars a few weeks ago, or months ago. Um, cities are very neighborhood sensitive and it took us a long time to learn this, but that's why I think we could and should have five URCs in Washington, D.C. because Northwest would be one church, maybe something near a university campus in Georgetown, Capitol Hills. People in Capitol Hill aren't going to go to Northwest D.C. Then there's the Anacostia River that really separates with the neighborhood the area known as Southeast D.C., which is Anacostia, which is the most economically depressed now. And there are some wonderful churches doing ministry down there. Um, a Reformed Baptist, likely Capitol Hill Baptist, with Mark Dever has a church plant down there. But um, this gets to this issue of, are we going to plant regional churches? Like, we have one church in Baltimore and people can drive an hour to come to us. Or are we going to plant neighborhood churches? And so this has been a debate in church planting for many, many years. And, and I've only, I knew this debate existed, but I've only come to understand its relevance in lots of different ways. This is often used for an argument that we need to be as generic as possible. So we need to not be reformed so people can walk from across the street because we have to be very attractive to people who aren't just looking for a reformed church. And on the opposite end of the spectrum is we plant a new church in um, you know, Dallas and we say, we're looking for Dutch people looking for a reformed church. And you micro-target and if you, you can find those people in a big city like Dallas, but they're all going to be driving an hour. right? The more, so you have this spectrum. You can be really confessional, or you can be really generic. And that spectrum, in some degree, is tied to whether you're going to target a very narrow area, neighborhood, or a region. And I think our model today is we are committed to being a Capitol Hill church, a neighborhood, and a regional church. And we want to meet new people in our neighborhood and say, to them, our story is we're, we preach the Bible. Come here about Jesus died for your sins. And then they're going to learn about the Reformed faith. And, and we'll also, I hope, support folks looking for a URC in the greater D.C. metro area. I think you can be both of those things. I don't think it's an either-or. So I think it's a great question. We don't get, we, we get a lot of people in a similar upper-middle-class socioeconomic pattern, really because we were in northwest D.C. for 14 years. But we do have wonderful examples, and I'm sure you have them here. We had one individual who... Um, was an older gentleman. He's since retired. He worked for the FBI. His wife worked for the Department of Justice as well. And they were in Michigan, and he was detailed to D.C. for like a year work. And he was just looking for a church. He was a Methodist. And he was living in an apartment across the street from our church, and he came and started worshiping with us. And then his wife moved to town, and this is one of those transitional stories. They were only with us for about three or four years. But in that time, they became members, and they embraced the Reformed faith. But if, the, if there's no one flying the flag, if there's no one as a rally point, those people, the opportunity cost, right? There's nowhere for those people to land and to hear Jesus. And I'll tell you right now, like of all the churches in D.C., a lot of them are just whitewashed tombs. They're the 
far progressive churches. They're the highly politicized churches. I mean, there's the whole range of churches that we meet in America today, right? But in the center of urban cores, a long time ago, many of the big evangelical churches fled to the suburbs. And that, that pattern has reversed itself a little bit, but it's still a desert and a wasteland. So I, I do agree with Tim Keller that cities matter a lot, not for all these sort of abstract reasons, but because people are there. <laughs> and, and a lot of times our sons and daughters will be there. People will go to school at Georgetown or um, you know, Stanford in the Bay Area or UC Berkeley. And where are they going to worship when they're in school if we don't build churches for them? Um, and I think oftentimes without thinking about it, without making an intentional choice, you know, we've defaulted to the Chevy in the suburbs instead of budgeting for a Cadillac and maybe planting a flag in enemy territory, but in a place that, you know, when young men like Kyle Lee move across the country, they can transfer to another URC church, which really fills our hearts with joy. Yes? Well, that's a, I mean, obviously it's, you can, it's easy to tell when you're in a well uh, catechized and a thoughtful church because you guys are asking such great questions, right? Um, I think that's not an either or, but I think it's a very difficult question to answer. And I, I'll just be honest and say, I don't know. But I do know that I think this is a church that has a current and a history of supporting missions. And, and there's, it's a big world. We live in a big world. Um, that's an unending need, right? And, and that is a wonderful uh, thing to support. I think in one sense, we should always have some percentage of our energy, prayers, life in, in being alert to the local scene. Wherever, every church plan is different. Every church is different. But to the opportunities that are right on our doorstep. Because when I grew up, you know, foreign missions. When I was in college, I was in a broad evangelical setting. I grew up Roman Catholic, and then in like high school and college, I was kind of evangelical, and then I read Calvin and Luther and met Mike Horton, and sort of you all heard that story before from other people. But, um, you know, foreign missions was like, oh, that's where you're reaching the lost, right? I, when I was in college, I went to the Urbana Missions Conference, and like you go, and there's this huge convention, and we're doing all this stuff for the world. It's like, we live in a post-Christian America, I think your dad's teaching a series of Sunday school up at Escondido URC, right, on, like, the mission field's right here. So the mission field's everywhere. It's really easy for us in the sense that it's like fish in a barrel. Like, we can't miss. <laughs> and so every individual, every church is going to be a little bit different. Where, where do you develop your, your vision, your loves, your affection? Um, and I think the key thing is to always have it on the agenda that you're not looking at it, you're merely at your internal needs, but you're looking at, at your neighbors and the lost and weighing where you can most effectively contribute to that. Um, and so I think individual congregations might have an emphasis in one or the other. I think as a federation, we must do both. And that's very difficult to do. And the URC is, is gradually growing its mission's capacity. Um, so... I hope that helped. I'm happy to answer any further questions. I'm going to follow the deadline of noon because I hear it at high noon, like fireworks go off or something. It's, it's crazy in this place. But I'll give, if someone has a two-minute question, any short questions? Good question. So 
one of the short ways I, I sort of tell our story is kind of like, um, you know, Joseph in Egypt, fat years and lean years. So we had this wave where we grew in like maybe 2017, 2018, we peaked. And then 2019 was hard. And then 2020 and 21, you all know that story, like harder in different ways. So currently we're very small. And so ironically, God has put like building blocks in place, property, leadership. Um, in our fat years, we were able to sock away some money in the bank. But right now, we're running a huge deficit every year. But I think he has us in the right place. So we had about uh, 49 people last week for worship as attendance. And our membership's north of that. But our membership roles are always weird because people are moving in and out. And that's about a, a 45% decrease. So we used to be regularly 60, 70 people. And we've shrunk a good deal now. We're typically, our averages are like in the 30s or 40s. And so that's a small size to grow off of. The, the path forward is very difficult for us, and financially it's very challenging. Um, so we're, we're a small church now, and, and we're praying that the Lord provide growth. He's provided so many things for us, and he's sustained us. So thank you for that question. I'm going to close on that note, and allow me to close in prayer, if I may. Merciful God in heaven, um, we have paused this week, a study through the canons of Dort, and we, we miss that teaching today. And uh, we pray your blessing on that course of study for this congregation in the coming weeks. And, but we pray, dear Lord, that we would have this affection and end of, of your missionary spirit that is taught in those canons to inform the rest of our lives as we, um, as we fix our eyes on your word and, and we fortify ourselves and we focus on that path you would have us tread as, as faithful Christians, no matter how costly it may be. And we thank you for your many blessings, dear Lord, and send us forth here with joy and gratitude in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.